Good morning, friends. These are the words of the prophet Isaiah. We're reading this morning from Isaiah 50, which is on page 732 if you want to follow along in your pew Bible. If you listen carefully, you may hear echoes of Jane Warner's. Reading verses 4 through 9. The Sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the Sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament lesson is from the epistle to the Hebrews starting with the 29th verse of chapter 11. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. 
They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. I invite you to, uh, to pray with me as we settle a little more deeply into God's word this morning. Let's pray for the Spirit's illumination. God, as uh, Hebrews 11 reminds us again today, uh, the road of faith is not always easy. God, as we uh, study this text, we pray that your spirit would move among us. We ask you to open our ears, our hearts, our minds. We ask you to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the one who alone is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So speak now, Lord, and as you speak, help us to listen, for the truth is we so desperately need you. In Jesus' name, all God's people prayed. Amen. So we are, in fact, in Hebrews 11 yet again. Jen, last week, uh, took us into the the first half or so of this chapter. We're looking at uh, verses 29 through chapter 12, verse 3 today, as our lectionary has us moving uh, through these chapters, and so I've been thinking about the nature of faith, and I, I got a flashback this week of uh, young Tony Curran in high school, this is before I was Tony Holmes Curran, uh, in Kettle Moraine High School in Wisconsin, uh, an eager young evangelical. I used to go to uh, these summer 
evangelism uh, apologetics camps that Wheaton College would host called SEMP, Students Equipped to Minister to Peers, where it was a couple weeks, uh, and there was lots of good things in this, even though there was also parts that I had to later deconstruct. Uh, but it was two weeks of intense apologetics training, and I was really into this stuff, and I, I uh, would go home, and I, would, I remember reading through Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict, as though it was like the third testament of scripture. Uh, and uh, this stuff was all about uh, proving the faith to those who were skeptical of it. Uh, learning proofs for the existence of God or proofs for the resurrection and the credibility of scripture and so forth. And uh, one of the things that used to drive me crazy in this part of my life was this, this phrase, this characterization of Christians as being a people of blind faith. And it was one of those uh, terms that was often used pejoratively, I think, towards Christians saying, oh yes, you, you believe by blind faith. But it's something that you'd, you'd even see in Christian media and many of those bad Christian movies uh, that would come out uh, with this sort of Hallmark-esque sentimentality, this call to blind faith, and I would react so strongly to that, saying, our faith is not blind, it is credible, and look at the long intellectual tradition of philosophers and scientists and artists and all the ways that uh, Christianity has been able to and, and can continue to show that we don't believe by this blind leap of faith. We believe with uh, evidence that demands a verdict, that there's credible cases to be made for why these 27 documents we call the New Testament are credible in the lives of these people whose lives were drastically changed, who were willing to, to die because of how deeply they believe the credibility of their witness and so forth. And uh, as, I, as I mentioned, as I've grown, uh, I hope, over the years and gone through the journey of seminary, uh, I've, in a way, I think to, to, to young Tony's chagrin, uh, come to accept that there is an element of our faith that maybe isn't blind, but is quite limited in our ability to see. Again, I think there's a place for apologetics. There's a place for arguments for the existence of God. But I've come to realize that at the end of the day, you can't prove that God exists. And you can't prove that Jesus really rose from the dead. Just like you can't prove that God doesn't exist or that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We believe by faith. It's not by proof. It's not by evidence. Going back to last week's text, chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. I think that talks about a certain psychological certainty. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what was seen was not made out of what was invisible. We believe these things by faith, not because we were there to see that God created the universe, uh, 
but it's an aspirational kind of faith. It's a trusting sort of faith. It's not blind. There's, there's reason for it. It's not that we are just a people who believe ridiculous things because somebody, when we were young, told us to believe ridiculous things. There's a grounding for our faith. But there is a limited sight to the journey of faith. There is a certain blindness, a certain darkness to our ability to see. The truth is, God's people have always lacked the perspective of the big picture. We've always only been able to see, but dimly, as Paul puts it. We maybe have the grasp of one piece of the puzzle, but the promises, the assurance of our hope is just that. It is a hope that's so much bigger than what we see in this life. And Hebrews 11 gives me comfort in knowing that this was and has always been the case. That faith has always been a struggle for God's people. And that many times throughout the history of God's people, the circumstances when they looked out at the state of the world oftentimes were quite dark, quite grim, quite tempting towards discouragement and despair. And again, this has always been the case. And one thing that the writer of Hebrews does so beautifully, uh, one commentator calls the writer of Hebrews the preacher. Hebrews is anonymous. We don't know who the writer is, but uh, Tom Long in his commentary calls the writer of Hebrews the preacher and and reads it as a, a, a sermon, an address to the congregation that is God's people, the church at the time. It says what the writer does so beautifully is zoom back and give us this this expanded view of history in which we're able to see the saints, the heroes of the faith, and what he calls this great parabola of history, this great lineage, uses the metaphor into chapter 12 of this relay race, this marathon of history in which the baton is passed on, and shows us that, yes, at times, the saints of the faith, the heroes of the faith throughout history, were able to see glimpses of the promise, yet at the same time, The road of faith was fraught with so much pain and trial and suffering. There's stories in it of heroes of the faith being sawed in half, which I imagine would be quite painful. Uh, That's an allusion, they think, to uh, what happened to the prophet Isaiah, whose Joel's reading for us today comes from, of them being killed by the sword of them having to hide in fear, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them, the preacher says. And I struck again by the reading today how he acknowledges, or she, some think that maybe Hebrews is written by a woman, which could explain why it's anonymous, that the writer says not one of them received what had been promised. Not one of them had received what was promised. And not one of us 
will receive in full what was promised until the day when Christ comes again, which could be today, could be tomorrow. It could be another 1,000 or 2,000 years away. There's an incompleteness inherent to our faith. As we sing about, as we yearn for the promises of God, I was struck again by our singing today and was jotting down. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him alone. Our hope till the race is finished and the work is done will we'll walk by faith and not by sight. I, uh, I've been reading this, this book called A Non-Anxious Presence by Mark Sayers. He's an Australian church leader and writer. How a changing and complex world will create a remnant of renewed Christian leaders. Uh, it's published by Moody Press, which isn't my uh, you know, go-to publisher, but I, I, it was highly recommended by some people that I respect, and uh, it's stirred up lots of interesting uh, just questions and offered a helpful paradigm shift for me. Uh, it would be interesting if any of you check this out, you know, want to take a look at it uh, to get some of us conversing about this book and some of the implications of it here at Sherman Street. Uh, but Mark Sayers, uh, he says that we live, and this book just came out this year, just a couple months ago, so it's very much informed by the pandemic and all the tumult of the last several years. Uh, he calls on the church to acknowledge that we find ourselves in what he calls a gray zone time in history and likens to a form of wilderness. He says we live between two epochs of history where at the same time we are witnessing the end of what he calls the American century in which our security, our sense of trust, so much of our identity has been uh, placed in these strongholds of institutions that we have come to, to, he says, hold our anxiety at bay in. And so the way that power has operated, uh, the way our anxiety has been held in check has been through trust in these institutions in these huge power structures in, uh, for those of us in this context, in America's dominance uh, and the, the pseudo-security that that's offered us. We've placed our trust in democracy and all the institutions of the land. And he says that the American century is coming to a close and what's happening is we're shifting into a new epoch of history that he calls the networked age, where power moves differently, where it's not secure in these institutions, but the world is changing at a whole different pace, where where the institutions that we've put our security in are crumbling before our eyes. And he says, we're moving into this networked age, but we're not yet in it. We're in this liminal space of transition. And he likens it to the wilderness because he says it's, it's unleashed all of the anxiety that these strongholds, these institutions have held at bay for uh, 
the last hundred or so years. And he calls on the church to, to recognize this, to acknowledge this, and also to see the, the opportunity in this moment. Because he says, as God's people, our security, our trust has been misplaced all this time. That especially the white American church have placed our security in the wrong thing in placing in these institutions when all along our hope should have been in God and God alone. To look to Jesus as the only one who offers us true salvation. And so he says there's tremendous opportunity for the church in this moment. And in some ways, the, the, I think of the black church or churches throughout the world who have not had the possibility of placing their hope in white supremacy, in U.S. dominance, in the forms that many of us, if we're honest, have placed our security in, have a leg up on those of us who are mostly white churches. My summer uh, has been a weird one. I, uh, I found myself not as, maybe I'd say not as uh, cheery as I usually am. I, I don't know if it's a mild form of depression. I don't know if it's, if, if it's grief. Um, I read an article recently about the, the five stages of grief, which aren't necessarily linear. But I found myself mapping my summer onto these five stages of moving from denial to, uh, what is it? Or, uh, somebody help me if you know this. Denial to bargaining to anger to depression to acceptance. Uh, and some of it for me began with uh, our denomination synod in early June. And the decisions that were made there and the shift in power and the application of power. And the ways that that's, yeah, raises grave concerns for many of us for the future of the Christian Reformed Church in North America and the ways that we've seen changes in our democracy and uh, some of what's happening in the Supreme Court. I know many of you wrestling with, uh, many of you deeply tied to Calvin University and a trust in Calvin as an institution that's crumbling. I read another article recently that was a few weeks ago in The Atlantic that was looking at... uh, interacting with a number of scholars who, who have worked at, spent their careers tracing the collapse of democracies over the last hundred years and who have uh, come to a point of saying our, our country is at a tipping point and there's still time to perhaps recover and save our democracy, but, but certain reforms that from, for democracies that have been able to pull back, say, South Korea 
certain reforms need to take place very quickly in the next couple of years for us to, to not tip over this edge in which some of uh, some crucial aspects of our democracy uh, are lost. And I think, again, the summer for me has been, I hope, moving towards, away from denial. I tend to be, Jen and I joke about how uh, she's, she's very much the glass half empty <laughs> one, uh, right? Which is a part of her prophetic calling and her uh, ability to name the pain and suffering of this world so keenly to see where we are not, that gap between where things should be and where things are. And I tend to be the glass half full one. Uh, my, my MO through life has always been things will work out and most of the time that has worked for me. But I think the summer for me is a summer of, of grief, of moving towards, from denial towards acceptance through the anger and the bargaining, perhaps the depression And I'm comforted, and I haven't even gotten into global warming, right? I, that's a whole thing. And yes, there's some signs of hope in, you know, the recent legislation that's happening. Uh, but the big picture there remains bleak. Uh, and yet, in this season of wilderness... In the season where securities have been shaken, where institutions that we've always placed our trust in, like the CRC or Calvin or the Supreme Court or democracy, are shaken in ways that are unprecedented in many of our lifetimes, perhaps all of our lifetimes. There's a moment of opportunity in this for God's people, for us as Sherman Street Church, to fix our eyes on Jesus. To see that God's people have always, in a sense, lived in the wilderness. And that the hope and the promises that we hold in Jesus Christ of the eventual end of pain and suffering, of the day when injustice will be replaced with justice, of the time when all things will be restored when we'll see in full the lordship of Jesus. Hebrews 2 says that we don't see it as of yet, all things subject to Christ and us as his co-regents. We don't see it yet, the writer of Hebrews says, but we do see Jesus. And as the writer of Hebrews is writing, it's not as though they could see Jesus in the flesh in the way that the first disciples could. But we do see Jesus. We do see the example of Christ. We see the cross, the road of suffering, the one who is the author and perfecter of faith, the one who has journeyed through suffering and death. Some translations of Hebrews 12 too says, the source, we must focus on Yeshua, the source and goal of our faith. Our translation says the pioneer and perfecter of faith. If you remember the old King James, it was the author and the finisher of our faith. Good News translation says, the one on whom our faith depends from beginning to end. 
This is the one that the writer of Hebrews calls us to fix our eyes on, to place all of our hope in. Life in the wilderness is not just a place of great struggle, but it's also the place in which God does God's work of forming us as a people of faith. And as we look at this this list of the heroes of the faith, and as the preacher starts to pick up pace, as Tom Long says, and pick up at this point in the sermon this, this rhetoric, this flow, this rhythm, as they say, look at this long lineage of those who have gone before us, the ones who hand the baton of faith to us to keep the faith in times of wilderness. We look at these stories of, of people like David. The writer says uh, of David, he mentions David and others, and then says they escaped the edge of the sword. It says of them, their weakness was turned into strength. It says that they became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies, even as they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. I think of David and the, how one of the Psalms mentions how he, at one point in his life, I think he spent 14 years in the wilderness in this time between when he was anointed as a young king, when Samuel the prophet said, you would be the king of Israel, before he actually took the throne. Uh, there's one point the Psalms mentioned where he, he pre- pretended to be insane and let spit run through his beard uh, to fend off the persecution Uh, of those around him. And yet it's David who was also formed in the wilderness. And at the end of Mark Sayer's book, he reflects on the life of David and says, perhaps the difference between David and King Saul, both of them were formed as young men in the wilderness, but perhaps the difference between success and failure was that David remembered the wilderness, and David in his times of struggle remembered to return to the wilderness. Whereas Saul in his early success came to place his security in his power, which led to this deep and paranoid insecurity in which he was always uh, deeply afraid and led out of his fear. Whereas David, as a young shepherd, as one who is, grew up at the margins of power, as one who, uh, he mentioned this is the story when the prophet Samuel comes and looks for one of the sons of Jesse, who would be the, the future king of Israel, how David's just this afterthought. He says David was the, the runt of the family. He was a shepherd boy who spent his days alone in the wilderness, vulnerable. And when Jesse lines up his sons, it's only after Samuel says, no, it's none of these that they think to go find this young shepherd boy. 
and bring him before the prophet. And Sayers wonders if perhaps it was this formation in the wilderness, right? And so much of David's writings, so much of the Psalms, I think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. So much of his formation as a shepherd in the wilderness informed his understanding of God as his shepherd. Sayers talks about one uh, biblical writer who spent his, his life in East Africa as a shepherd and how his interpretations of scripture had been formed by his life as a shepherd. And he says, uh, it's rare for sheep to lie down. That sheep are anxious, that they're paranoid, that they're, they're vulnerable, they, there's this herd mentality. And he says, my sheep would only lie down in my presence when they knew to trust my voice and my presence and sense perhaps my lack of anxiety, my groundedness, that they knew that it was safe for them to lie down and to rest. And then he wonders about David's writing about God as his shepherd. And how it's this deep trust in the goodness and provision of God and God alone, not in any earthly security, that allowed David to write and to pray. He leads me beside quiet waters. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And it's David's pattern of returning to the wilderness, of returning to that place alone with God that has become the model for us in our time in the wilderness of the way forward. Not, he says, to give in to the temptation to return to past comforts, but to turn to Jesus and only to Jesus. Henry Nouwen says that the wilderness is both the place of great struggle and the place of great encounter. The place of great struggle and the place of great encounter. And so I just, I want to leave us today with this question. As we heed the preacher's call to carry on in the race of faith, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the source and the outcome of our faith, What does it look like for you when you sense the anxiety of our times and whatever personally is going on in your life? When you sense the collapse of the securities around us, what does it look like for you to not seek to flee from the wilderness through the comforts of Netflix and old fashions? (laughs) These are my (laughs) go-to. 
And there's a place for these things, right? But what does it look like to press into the wilderness? And instead of running from it, to meet Jesus in that place, to go into the quiet, to face those fears, to discover again what it looks like to place our hope in Christ and Christ alone. Please pray with me. God, you and you are alone. You are our comfort and our strength. Not our bank accounts, not our job security. Not the stability of the United States of America or of the CRC or of Calvin or of anything else, Lord. Our hope is in you and you alone. And we carry on in the faith not because our circumstances always look good and always reflect to us evidence of the eventual outcome of the promise of your lordship, of all being made right, of shalom, of the heaven and earth being one. Sometimes, Lord, we get glimpses of that promise, but often, Lord, faith requires us to carry on with the promise yet unfulfilled. So we cry out to you, Lord. Anoint us with your spirit. Give us faith again for another week. Give us faith again for today. Give us faith until you come again. Until the promise is fulfilled. In Jesus' name, God's people prayed. Amen.